once you've felt something, you don't unfeel it. Once you've seen something, you don't unsee it. That needs to be cracked open. I really feel strongly about that. But I also see the role of community art as a way of bringing diverse conversations together and difficult conversations together that hold a vision of a common place. I've done numerous projects where that has been so powerful and it just ignites the next layer of conversation and people wanting to, you know, it's really captured them at a, at a very emotional level. If you're not connected with your heart, it doesn't take long before we lose the, the thread of what we're really about. Hi, I'm Benji Ross. And I'm Anna Perpera. And we want to welcome you to Awakening Lands. Where we aim to give land a voice and share stories of humans who are learning to live in ways that nurture and animate life. Here, you'll find unfolding stories of regeneration that are happening all over the planet. And feel the story of humans learning to come home. We will highlight the people working to create the possibility of regenerating whole landscapes. We're calling these people landscape leaders. The easiest way to spot them is by their devotion to their people and place. They are essential to regeneration, and we want to share their stories in order for them to see one another and for us all to see the pathways they've taken. It's in this way we'll also see entire bioregional narratives coming to life. And we're aiming to do more than tell stories. The Earth needs her humans to come together as one to become more than we've been. Let's co-create the spaces to do so. Let's author the stories that show us how. Are you in? All right, welcome everyone. Today we have Claire Atwell joining us. Um, welcome Claire, it's good to see you. Actually, you uh, know what? Can we just yeah. stop for just two secs? I'm gonna sure. go and turn the light on because I realize my face is in the dark a little bit and- It's uh, audio only? It's only audio. It's audio. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. We're leaving all this in. <laughs> oh, we yeah. Aren't. We aren't. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. All right. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are interviewing Claire Atwell, uh, someone I've I've been getting to know for quite a while. It's just great to have you today, Claire. Uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really, really excited to be here with you and Anna. Yeah, great. Two of my favorite people. Uh, <laughs> we love you too. You're our favorite too. <laughs> Don't tell anybody else. <laughs> oh, this is going to be published, but um, <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and introduce you. Uh, one could say, Claire, that you are many things for the sake of our landscape leaders. For now, I'll just leave it to community artist and bioregional organizer. Claire skillfully weaves community through the process of creating art. Really, she holds the space and the creative process does the weaving. Uh, it's in between the phases of first collectively envisioning a concept and then eventually sharing it with the community that Claire says relationships and community building actually happens. In the creation of things like large scale textile wall hangings, she's facilitated the exploration of things like complex systems, place-based identity, and spirituality. I know Claire pretty well. Uh, we've been walking the pathway of bioregional learning together for a few years now. Uh, although, oddly enough, uh, in this virtual era, I've never met you in person, which is just crazy to think about. Uh, and I also know that Anna is quite fond of Claire. I don't think it's all that uncommon. Claire is a, an mm -hmm. outspoken advocate for the role of the community weaver, which for the sake of the common language uh, we're using in this podcast, we might say that uh, community weavers are a kind of landscape leader. 
Um, she's seen time and again the invaluable services they provide to their people in place and the often unfortunate ways that they are overlooked and underappreciated. Uh, we're trying to do something about that here, and, and Claire is a huge inspiration for that here in this podcast. Her perspective on community weaving began in the beginning, during her childhood in South Africa, where she grew up under apartheid with parents who were dynamic weavers themselves. Her house played host to some of the main characters of that time and place. She grew up listening to conversations about social system change in a place of profound need for it. She moved to Canada as a young adult, but remains deeply influenced by her early years in growing up in South Africa. She's also especially interested in exploring what makes complex systems functional. I think Claire is a systems thinker, but even more so, I think she's a systems feeler. And so once again, welcome Claire uh, in our podcast we're starting out with gratitudes just to enter uh, a space of appreciation of optimism for the future. Uh, and I want to invite either of you to, to share gratitude, whoever feels ready. Anna, would you like to start? I see you moving. I, I live in um, Buffalo, New York. It's the beginning of fall right now. And uh, yesterday I went down to, there's a park by my house that has this beautiful, um, creek that runs through it called Ellicott Creek. And I just sat by that creek and watched some some ducks swimming, uh, getting ready to fly south, I'm sure. And I'm just very thankful and grateful for having access to to a space like that. It was a really wonderful place for me to to meditate and think about things. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for those um, those places that are so special to us and so peaceful that we can go to. Um, Claire, would you like to go next? Yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, thank you, Benji, for the lovely introduction. Um, you know, we have just finished the Cascadia Bioregional Activation Tour. And uh, just coming out of that and feeling the sense of working with a team of people who could, um, who are really holding this really big vision and the pace that we had was completely crazy. It was, um, but it was like, it was an event every single day. I don't know how some of them, including Joe Brewer was um, doing all of the events that he was doing, but uh, just to have the sense that we were a, a dedicated group of people who had each other's backs. I could feel the energy going to each of the places, there was a sort of reciprocity of energy. And um, it, it it was just amazing. So just so grateful for the people that, I just feel so privileged to have traveled along with them and to be um, feeling as if we're in a place in uh, just in the times that we are and that we can hold together and the synchronicity of all of the things that kept coming together. It was amazing. So I, I'm feeling like I'm on a high. Benji. Yeah, well, yeah, similarly, um, I'm just thinking about what's unlocked by long-term relationships. As I, you know, look at you, Claire, I've known you for years. We've been friends for quite a while. Uh, and I just I feel grateful for, for the history there and, and recognition that we have just such a, a huge capacity or potential for for doing things together because we've known each other for a long time because we're implicated in each other's stories to some extent 
even though I still haven't seen you in person. <laughs> going to um, change that soon. <laughs> we do need to change that. But yeah, let's let's jump into some some stories about you, Claire. Yeah. Oh, and I, I almost saw you in person that one time. We just couldn't make manage to get across the border to see each other. Uh, but hopefully soon, we'll also be able to see each other in person. We wanted to start out by some of the things that Benji mentioned in your intro, talking about your, your upbringing in South Africa. You reference growing up during apartheid as being really influential in your life. And your parents were also very influential. And through them, you met a lot of really important figures in that movement to end apartheid. And we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about your parents and the roles that they served in your community. Yeah. So my dad was a, um, he was a professor in, in biology, botany, sorry. And he had made his name and was internationally was able to travel. And so there were people that were in the science community that would come in and um, he was Dean of Science at the University of Witwatersrand. The reason why that feels important to say is that there was a certain status level that he had that allowed for a certain level of protection as well. So there were a lot of visiting academics that came through, but then they knew a lot of the editors of the newspapers and would hear about what was going on. Um, my mom had worked with Bears Nodi, who was one of the change makers, who was really instrumental in terms of imagining what a society that didn't have apartheid could look like. So it wasn't just about opposing apartheid. They knew that in order to be able to um, to transition, there needed to be massive transformation. It couldn't just be a shift. There were a lot of pieces that would need to be in place. And because both of my parents were in education, there were a lot of conversations around uh, what needed to happen in order to bring the completely inadequate, they called it Bantu education. It was anyone that was Black in order for them to be able to come to university and to be able to be trained so that there would be people that were of all colors who could step into some of the roles that were required. It couldn't just be whites. So they played very instrumental roles in actually creating those shifts in the universities. Um, it didn't happen at Fitz first, but my dad had been very involved with that in creating the shifts of what he would do. So I just, just a couple of examples. I think this is where I got my inspiration is he would use food and and conviviality so um, and wine <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he would invite all of the different departments in the the faculty of science on a Friday afternoon to come and talk about why it was really important for them to shift and he used a level of pragmatism because some of the departments were very conservative and so he would really pitch the idea that they were being um, uh, excluded on the world stage. They Academically, they couldn't publish. They couldn't go to conferences. And so he knew that that would be the pivot point for them. Um, with the more progressive ones, they would go much more deeply into it. But he would they would have these meetings um, on a Friday afternoon. And I've heard from so many different people um, over the years how much that changed how they... They thought about things, but also just bringing different groups together to share ideas that maybe didn't normally interact. So 
you have got this cross pollination of ideas that 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 becomes very potent. And then I saw them doing that at dinner parties in their home. They would bring people with very different backgrounds together because they knew the stories needed to be heard. And so my mom was a, a real, um, uh, she was a real renegade. So she was the one that sort of knew all of the dissidents. They knew that the people making decisions about some of the stuff that involved the change in education had actually never met or had dinner with people that were of another skin color. So they were making all these decisions. And so they'd say, well, you know, we can put that together. And they would have these dinner parties. And sometimes people would be like really put out because there's a dinner party that's multiracial, which was very unusual in South Africa. But, uh, you know, I've gone back and actually wanted to connect with people that had been part of my parents' lives because I knew that there had been something very special happening in my home. And that kind of got reflected back from whoever I went and spoke to is how influential those times were. There was just this aliveness of conversation. It was where the edges were being brought together that yeah. had not had the, the chance to meet. And I think that the other thing that I took very strongly from my dad especially was the integrity and trust that needed to be held. And he was incredibly trusted wherever he was. And so integrity was really important. They were pragmatic too. They didn't just talk to people who were like-minded. My dad would sit on, he became a principal of a university and was you know, invited to sit on various boards. One of the boards was a police board. Um, mm -hmm. The police were like absolute thugs. But he knew that that created a bridge and there was an important bridge. And there were things that were able to happen because he could speak them. The different languages was trusted by each of those different sides and was able to thread a needle when it really counted. I just find it so rooting and orienting that so much of this story uh, has to do with tending to relationships. Maybe we'd give this just a a little bit more space to be explored. I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything coming up in terms of how the conditions for these relationships to be woven formed. Yeah, I just, there is something I'm just realizing I'd love to bring in because I do think it's important. My mom was the one that had relationships. She was very caring. So she was part of a church, the St. Mary's Cathedral downtown, which is Desmond Tutu was the dean at that church, but there were other really significant people that came through the church because it was a community and they would work together. But my mom knew people that were really ordinary people. You know, I often remember going to people's homes where I knew that they, they were giving us something that was kind of a real treat. They were serving us on their best dishes. And it was like, like really, really humble what, mm. what they were offering us. And I knew how much they were honoring us and they had almost nothing. And just over and over again, seeing the generosity of people and people just, you know, I would have expected there to be resentment, but people were always just, the, the generosity and, and what they had to offer was just amazing and it had a really big impact on me and the ability to laugh and to tell jokes and 
and not to dismiss the horror of what was going on, but there was this ability to just be human and to treat others as humans. And because we had that interaction with very, very ordinary people in ways that I would say most white kids didn't, it actually kind of, I couldn't relate to most of my peers because they had no understanding of that. But what was really interesting was that my mom being pretty dedicated to just being part of ordinary people was able to bring those people, those relationships into these parties. And so you had this cross section of like Mm. pretty major decision makers and then people who had very significant insight into what was going on at the grassroots on the ground. And it was that confluence of things that was really interesting and very, very rich and very unusual. And my mom, my mom is one of the smartest people I think I've ever met. She was, she kind of, she knew what she was doing. She didn't, as a woman, South Africa was very chauvinistic. As a woman, she was able to leverage my dad's position to be able to do things that she wouldn't have been able to do, but they worked really well together. They both leveraged what the other was able to bring. And I think that made them, so they worked as completely as a, as a team. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one of the things that strikes me is the the nuance that you were talking about that your father had and that your mother also has. It's so needed. I was just thinking about all of the um, challenges that we're currently facing with Palestine and Israel and how nuanced these discussions need to be and how sensitive it needs to be that ability to kind of uh, to be able to to see both sides and see the whole system and be able to um, to navigate those different relationships is really incredible. And I think that that is amazing how it really has influenced you and I think has really influenced your community weaving. And also, I'd, going back to Claire's point that she made on the humility of all of it of people just being people together, of people being able to laugh together and share food Mm -hmm. together. That is one of the ways that we can break down these otherwise intractable conflicts to remind ourselves of that. So see the whole system like Anna's referencing and see the full complexity, make room for nuance and then just be people together. Like we just, we have to get so much better at that. Absolutely. Actually, I, I have something kind of fun that, uh, that as a kid, one of the things that, I mean, there was often a lot of laughter and I remember going to bed and like not, like my parents be having their dinner party and these were quite frequent, but the person, so Desmond Tutu was one of our favorite guests. There were a few favorite guests. He was one of them and he just paid so much attention to kids. I think that was part of it. But I, the thing I remember is, just his roar of laughter that would just come like peeling. Like he just had like this incredible laugh. Being able to have fun together, to take pleasure in the people that you're with is such an important piece because if you can't have fun together, you you kind of not be able to see each other's humanity. And it's easy when it's people that you get along with, I guess. But there's something that kind of gives you the fuel that energizes you, that allows you to kind of reach into difficult places when you're able to to connect and work your way through difficult things. So, yeah, I think that's really important. Definitely. 
What do you say, Claire? Does this feel like a good point to explore the role and the pull towards art in all of this? You know, I, I like my parents were so involved and engaged in the work they were doing. I didn't realize how there were lots of amazing adults and people in our lives, but there was nobody advocated for us at school. I was really badly bullied at school. I didn't, I had some learning, there were learning disabilities. And I continually wanted to, I wanted to be seen and to shine in something that I did. I shone in art and I, sh my, I was really athletic. But there was a sense of, I think we take our sense of being grounded by the people that are paying attention to us and giving us that affirmation, which I didn't get. And which also helps you understand who you are. And I didn't know who I was because I was trying to figure it out as much as I could. And so there was a sort of sense of being dissociated from myself. It was like I was watching myself and I couldn't figure it out. But, you know, you don't know how abnormal that is while you're in the middle of it. I think along with that was a lack of sense of belonging as well. You know, South Africa, my mom used to take us along to all these different, you know, she'd be giving rides to people and it would be in the middle of like war zones we would see these gangs of people, like hundreds of people gathered. And there's, it was a time when they were doing these, what was called necklacing, which is like, it's horrific. It's murder where they would burn people alive. You would see the fire going. And as children, we were really scared. And mm -hmm. my mom would just say, what are you scared about? You know, don't worry about it. Wow. And uh, so there was like no, I think I felt pretty traumatized about many of the situations that we were in. And there was a sense of not feeling as if I associated with the white government, which we'd seen enough to see how brutal it was, uh, mostly the police just behaving like thugs. So I didn't feel as if I belonged to the white side of the community. I wasn't black. Um, the music was just anything that that was exciting seemed to come from outside South Africa. So the, you know, there'd be music that was coming from outside that was, that was, you know, and I was a teenager at that point and sort of it just, everything was better somewhere else. It was like freaking boring. <laughs> and, uh, and I kept thinking, well, you know, my ancestry came from um, Ireland and England, you know, I would probably feel so much more at home. And when I went to England, I remember feeling it, completely foreign and as if I didn't belong there and then came back to South Africa and there had been this music that was starting to kind of bubble up I would go down to the markets and the kind of art and the vibe that was there was just alive that's the only thing I can describe there was sort of street theater that would be happening I just used to I got a job down um, at the market area it was like a really dangerous part of town and I just, I kept feeling this aliveness. And then I noticed that my peers at school were listening to the same music and really excited about it. And I noticed this commonality, like it wasn't black art and it wasn't white art. It was kind of this music that just was feeling amazing. And the, yeah, being a teenager, I was uh, just really attracted to. And it went to this amazing concert I've talked about before called The Concert in the Park. It was arranged like in about a month. They had pulled together all of the major artists in South Africa, black and white. And it was the first time that a multiracial 
concert was ever put on. And uh, yeah, there was over 130,000 people in this big rugby stadium that lasted the entire day. And there was just an energy there. That's the only thing I can describe. We're dancing and just, but it didn't matter. Black and white and people just weren't paying attention to what normally divided them. They were able to come together. But I noticed that it was happening the same with the textile arts. People were getting, like businesses were starting to flourish that had motifs that were, weren't black and weren't white. They were sort of this, this bric-a-brac of everything that had been pulled together that somehow was making this common identity. And it was the first time that I actually started to feel like I actually belonged and was just proud of what was happening. It's really hard not to get excited when there's just so much creativity that's just bubbling out everywhere. I've actually never seen such aliveness as what was going on down there. Claire, what a picture. The aliveness and belonging that you're expressing, that you experienced in that time and place, is that what drew you into becoming an artist yourself? Or is there more to that origin story? So this is going to sound really weird. I could always draw really well, like from when I was like really young. The other kids would come and ask me to draw stuff, but I kept feeling as if I was completely lacking in it being creative because I could accurately draw what they were wanting. But to me, I was so boxed into representing the thing. To me, that wasn't creative. I went into fine arts because that's what, you know, everyone said you needed to go into fine arts. And I kept feeling as if I was actually sort of, it's like that imposter syndrome of, um, of, yeah, but it's not really creative. And I kept feeling as if I was actually, the thing I really, when I saw what was really, what felt really creative, it was, something that had energy in it, that had movement and and just felt like it was um, the vibrant colors and the the movement and the like energy in it. I kept feeling as if there was a conflict that was happening inside of me, which is actually why I started working in textiles because I couldn't be as accurate. Because the thing is you start, like there's a perfectionism in being able to do something accurately and I couldn't break out of that. And so just turning to textile and the textiles that were in South Africa were amazing. So it was kind of like, it was like just juicy. I I got to kind of actually have the textile that I thought was amazing because it really is. There's something about textile artists. We're just really drawn to texture. And that allowed me to just break out and start to kind of actually just really stretch into what I felt was finally starting to feel creative. And I felt that had to be much more intuitive. Nobody can tell you what the plan is. If you're doing whatever you're doing as a piece, every time you put a new piece of anything into the, the artwork, you suddenly change the, de- the, the balance of the whole thing. And so there's this intuitive paying attention at a different level. You know, we were talking about food and having community and having to enjoy yourself. There's a kind of, um, there's a an ability to hold all of those pieces, like you have to be enjoying yourself. And there's also this ability to hold it all together. It's 
it's not dissimilar while you're doing the art. It's like you have to be enjoying yourself. Like I love the deliciousness of the fabrics and the colors and the, you know, you never know if it's actually going to work. It's kind of actually pretty scary. And it's one of the most exhausting things that I've ever, that I ever do. I just find that I'm completely drained at the end of creating a an art piece. That I think the thing when I'm creating art is that if you change the balance, if as you're doing, doing stuff, you can completely overdo it and then the whole balance is lost. You can fight it and it starts to get more and more out of whack. Or you've, you've got to just kind of listen to the to what's happening and there's no there's nobody telling you what to do. Like you have to figure it out. Um, as someone who's not an artist, that was just a great look into like your mindset when you're creating your pieces. You also you you kind of alluded to the fact that this process is similar to the process of community art. Can you tell us about how you think about and how you do community art? Yeah, maybe this sort of takes me, I need to probably just say a little bit about feeling that art, so when I did go to art school, I kept feeling as if what was happening, there was an academy of what was right and what was wrong. And it really didn't allow for what I've just described in the same way. There was this commodification of art and there was this sort of needing to make a name for yourself. And there was this judgment that just felt like it was disconnected. It was like an extension of possession of, you know, people needing to own something. There, there was just something that I just couldn't relate to. We'd been doing uh, African art and hist history of African art. And we were looking at um, the role of art where art wasn't a separate subject. It was art was embedded into the community. And so one of the things that just had such an impact on me was hearing how the person who wore the, the mask, they needed to have that bestowed on them by their community. So you couldn't just wear that, that mask and you were the one that got to do the dance with that. You know, I was often spending time in the markets and all these masks would arrive down and the value was an, a Western aesthetic. They had no idea of the context and didn't care. And to me, the most valuable part of that was the story and the, the bearer of that. And just that disconnect, it was like they couldn't actually see what the value of that piece of art was. And that was the first time that art started to make sense to me was that it was in a context and it's it wasn't about adorning someone's walls to make them feel sophisticated and whatever. And actually that then all became a bit of a farce to me. I just couldn't take it seriously. And it's not that I don't think that, to me, it's art is on a continuum. There is a place for art that is a, a commentary and that that can push aside. I absolutely, that's really important. But I think when all of art is kind of pushed as if that's the standard and none of it is is um, seen as being in service to a community knowing and understanding who they are, then it lost something really significant. And just because of what I was seeing, you know, in the breakdown of South Africa, the lack of coherence that was happening through apartheid, 
that loss of coherence was just connected to all all of that way of seeing the role of art. So maybe this is a good point for us to fast forward a bit to see you putting this perspective like into practice. So we're going to jump ahead from your time in South Africa to Victoria, British Columbia. And can you tell us what was it that led you to organizing community art projects in Canada? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, maybe just the short trip of it was um, taking a deep dive into researching community cultural development. You know, it's really hard to talk about something where there is no language and there wasn't any language. We ended up, I did. I was hired by the provincial government to go and, and research models for community cultural development, which was a way I felt of arts being the, the thing that would hold hold the center. What was it that would be the attractor for, for creating a sense of coherence? Because I think that's that had been the through line for me all the way through my growing up was um, the lack of coherence. And I was continually looking at, it didn't matter whether you got your change of government or your whatever, it would start falling apart because there weren't certain fundamental pieces there. And I knew that it needed to be based in community. Community had been a really important part of my growing up and what I'd seen, um, long relationships and trust. Um, we spoke about that much earlier, Benji, because there's a depth through time that starts to happen. But mm -hmm. I had this concept, but I hadn't actually, and then I was looking at community art projects and realizing I just kept being inspired by community art and seeing how it was taking the stories of ordinary people and reflecting them in some way in, a, in an artifact that could be um, seen and felt by the community. And it, they, there's a sort of sense of pride because it has to happen at a local level. As soon as it gets larger, it just becomes too, it's kind of like the experts did it or whatever. This needed to be, so, there's so much creativity and I saw that over and over again in communities. And when they have the opportunity to come and share, you know, the different ideas and what they have, they've got so much wisdom and knowledge of what's going on in the ground. It, they just need to be heard. And I saw so much creativity happening there and it being over and over again ignored. So anyway, that, well, that was my real interest in community cultural development. And I knew that it needed to be developed. We started to look at models and language and being able to even just describe what it was that I was talking about. Um, so the naming of community cultural development was a huge, huge piece. We put a, I'll just say this, we put a big conference together in, uh, in 1996 um, in Vancouver, where I just felt this huge amount of relief that other people started to have this language and could start articulating why this was so important. Because it just, you need others to be able to hold the story. The thing was, I had never done community art. I'd seen everybody else doing it, but I I was suddenly finding myself in this position where I was being referenced, you know, people were coming to me to talk about it, and I actually didn't know what practicing community art was. I'm trying to think of the first times. I think it was just a, a good friend of mine who always kind of supported me on like what always felt like crazy ideas, and she would just come and say, well, 
I just think we should go and do it. <laughs> and we did, you know, there were all kinds of sort of small events that we would go and do. And then that that went on for quite a while. But I, I found it a little bit shallow in a way because it would be working with somebody, but it wasn't really the depth of relationship. It was when I was um, an artist in residence at, uh, well, it was Cabra Bay United. And I was there for over 10 years. Well, I started to work with a team, a group of musicians that were part of that. And I was the person doing the visual arts, but it was also with the ideas and it was often challenging the status quo. I I began to see what it was doing to the community because they saw their own creativity coming through either in the work that I was leading them through in workshops and then producing that or I would do the art that was taking their conversations and putting it into something that they could see. And sometimes the words didn't make sense to me. Sometimes I had to go to a feeling sense mm. of what was needed. And I think that the examples that I saw released me from the commodified version of art, mm. try and discover what it was that, that made sense. And so I didn't know what I was doing. I think I had to feel into what was needed. And yeah. so when I was using art, I was making it up as I was going. I was reading lots. I was seeing examples of things, but they didn't always fit into what I was looking for. I didn't see examples of what, it was like I had this vision of where I needed to go, but I didn't know how to get there. The thing I feel very fortunate about is that you know, I would figure out a project that would kind of be able to carry us to that place. But I had no idea. I had enough people that, that were able to go along with the project that I was able to pull together. And I had a background in, in arts administration, so I could kind of manage the whole project and, and pull it off. But I was always flying by the seat of my pants to try and try and do it. But because I was in a community, allowing myself to just kind of be in a place ideas would suddenly start coming up, which I couldn't have anticipated, but I had to be in the place where all the stuff was happening. And that's where the ideas would start to come up. It was like a way of synthesizing all of the, the things that were relevant to that community that was part of the conversation. And it was also part of the direction of where we were wanting to go because it would all start happening at the same time. I don't know how to describe that, but it's just, it's just dynamic. And you know, I think that being in that flow is where I need to be, but it's very hard to put it into language sometimes. The thing about art is that the thing that gives me the greatest joy is when other people have some recognition there. If they have been part of a process and something's unlocked for them, that's allowed them to see in a different way, it's just so exciting to see them being able to get to a new place because they've done something that's allowed that creativity to unlock in, in that way. You know, it's not just representing it. It's something that triggers something in them. There's a kind of recognition that they have, but they then have a sense that they've been seen. I think that's a really, really powerful thing when you feel that you've been seen and that the potential that was arising is also reflected. And then the other thing that I'm really like felt strongly about after a while was actually um, making sure that the 
the artifact, the art wasn't the thing. Like every year I would actually cut it up and make it into something else. And I remember people being really shocked at first because they, they did grow to love something because it would be up for almost a year. And then they started to understand because I would show them where little pieces of what had been were then embedded into something new. What a clear demonstration of the meaning behind the map not being the territory. You know, this exploration of shared identity and belonging, I'm just so reminded of her genesis in the story of place, community discovery process, both community art and that are so much about an exploration of, of what a place is, of who they are, of a, a collective search for, for higher potential. And to me, this just has bi-regional learning written all over it. You mentioned community art holding the center of the formation of coherence, the holding of coherence. Yeah, I just, I feel so strongly that when, when we're saying community art and bi-regional learning in really interesting ways, we're, we're saying the same thing. And I'm, I'm wondering if at this point we can explore a, a little bit of that overlap from, from your perspective. So something that I'm pretty sure I've told you this before, Benji, but I'm going to just, yeah, is, uh, um, you know, in South Africa, I would see, we would go very, very rurally. So there's no, often no electricity and it's, and there's these little kids and they're barely able to walk. There's not even really music playing and you can just see somebody's got like a beat and they've, they've just kind of got a dance that's sort of happening. And that happened all over the place. People just so easily slipped into or just felt the beat and would start singing together. In fact, I just went back to South Africa and in the early morning, I'd forgotten about this. I'd hear this beautiful singing. These were the indigenous people in uh, the Indabela that were up in the Northern Transvaal or, or Kauteng now, they would start their morning every single morning singing. And it was like a, a grounding and a calling, but it's like nobody just sings. They, they're like, there's a beat and they move their bodies and they had a kind of openness to what was coming at them compared to, I kept seeing um, white Western educated people who were stiff and just not able to you know there was like a proper way to be and people would kind of make you feel uncomfortable if you were doing anything that that wasn't like as if you were straight jacketed I just kept noticing that that had affected me was that I felt like I really wanted to dance and I felt as if you can't just dance. So you're kind of straitjacketed. And the sort of openness and aliveness of being able to just respond to the environment that you're in, I think we have to learn. And I realized this, we need to learn to be freed, to be able to just feel what's in our bodies and to not be so straitjacketed by, you know, in Western societies, like people don't talk about sexuality, they don't talk about death, they don't talk about there's so many things that are forbidden, and it shuts down and it creates these barriers that are actually interfere with our being able to fully engage in living and I guess sort of 
creating conditions where people don't feel shame, don't feel judged, can just be who they are. And when they are able to just be like that, like the incredible potency of what can come out, they bring these beautiful gifts that come from being in a place that are never able to actually come out because they've been invalidated over and over and over again. That's not important. That doesn't matter. Your relationship, you know, the mountain, that's just a tree. So objectification, all those things have been shut down. And so creating these pathways for people to just feel the, really feel the aliveness of what is there and to respond to it and to know that it's okay. The other thing is it's like just tasting your food. You know, if you taste something and, and this happened all the way through the Cascadia tour where we kept coming to people who were like, oh my God, did you, it comes from like a mile away from here. I grew it in my garden. It all came from, you know, and there's this celebration of what was grown and and the relationship of the people that made it and who grew it and knowing how that's all connected. So, yeah. So anyway, why I was talking about food, there's this thing about taking pleasure in just enjoying the food. Like we're supposed to be this, you know, sort of stiff. We don't take pleasure. We work hard. We've got a, you know, a work ethic that just kind of we're on a schedule. And when you're mm. on a schedule, it's shutting down being fully present like to be fully present, you can't actually taste the food if you're not actually present. You can't be with people if you're not actually really present. And I just, I mean, I actually don't think it's that complicated. Any of this that we've been talking about is, you know, being present means that you're actually genuine. You're in the territory. You're not in the map. Map is not the territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what, what's next for you? I know that the role of community art is really essential. It's everything that I was describing is that there needs to be, uh, people need to be released. I think once you've, once you've felt something, you don't unfeel it. Once you've seen something, you don't unsee it. That needs to be cracked open. I really feel strongly about that. But I also see the role of community art as a way of bringing diverse conversations together and difficult conversations together that hold a vision of a common place. I've done numerous projects where that has been so powerful and it just ignites the next layer of conversation and people wanting to, it's really captured them at a, at a very emotional level. If you're not connected with your heart, uh, it doesn't take long before we lose the, the thread of what we're really about. We need to, and it's not something that you do once. It has to be practiced. So ceremony and ritual are really an important part of grounding and keeping ground. We, we need to remind ourselves over and over again why it is we're doing what we're doing. And if we don't have the why, everything else falls apart eventually. I've seen the best projects falling apart because they're just not grounded. So as far as what comes next, I would really like to see supporting community art as a, kind of almost as a catalyzing you know starting point for some of the conversations it's just the easy way to do it like yeah. 
who doesn't want to have a party and just kind of enjoy like what that brings. So, yeah. I'm with you there. The community art piece also helps to make what is often invisible visible. Yeah. And that is so critical. We have got so blinded by, you know, the very narrow way of looking at the world and to be able to open that up, it just, it makes people feel alive. And that's what I think the power is. There is so much power in um, when people feel alive, they're drawn to that. You know, when you have a sense of who you are and uh, how you belong, it's very difficult for a say a Walmart to come in and say um, we're going to you know bring you jobs and what have you it's like uh, no you're not that's going to destroy my community because you know what you're protecting and you know what that feels like it doesn't just come from a knowledge place it comes from a heart place. Claire is there any way that listeners can support you follow your story? You know what? I've just been a terrible self-promoter so um, uh, yeah just just keep um, your ear out for um, conversations around community art and uh, and make sure that artists are in the room when you're having important conversations and try to find the people that do have uh, some of the practice of community art. And if you don't have someone that you can call on, please feel free to give me a call because I'm pretty passionate about this and I'd be very happy to to help you think through or even come and visit to help get something started but uh supporting supporting local communities to do this work is what i'm really drawn to so oh potent ending well thank you claire it's been great to talk to you as always thanks claire thank you both that's it feels really good to be able to tell the story Mm -hmm. yeah thank you for doing so Thanks for listening. If you're feeling a jolt of inspiration, if you'd like to support Anna and me in our ongoing efforts to tell these stories, you can donate to us on our Patreon at Awakening Lands. Links for all of this can be found in the show notes. Thanks, and please tell your landscape we said hello.